Shelton. Welcome to the show. Uh, this week, it's just little old me. And this is a show that has been uh, days, weeks in the making. And I'm finally, finally getting to uh, sitting down and actually recording it. There were various uh, physical ailments getting in the way and then schedule problems getting in the way. I really meant to do this on May 4th, Star Wars Day, a couple days ago. Um, but I ended up getting into a three-hour interview live stream with a Mormon and my good friend Jonathan Streeter, who is a former Mormon and one of the three apostates uh, members that you know from all those shows we did. So John invited me onto his channel, and we ended up doing what I thought was only going to take a few minutes, and ended up being this three-hour, whatever you want to call it, uh, argument with a man-child. It was really quite ridiculous, the whole thing. But um, anyway, you can watch that. I posted that on my channel here. I mirrored it from John's channel. So Y'all can check that out, and some of you have been during the week, and the comments have been great. Um, not me at my best, uh, and I did uh, try to explain a little bit in the comments there what that was all about. But anyway, that's that was that. This is this, and let's do this podcast now. And this is actually based on a viewer suggestion that I take the book History of Man and start breaking it down and really kind of looking into this and uh, maybe you know, from the point of view of laughter or ridicule. And that's not really necessarily how I approach things most of the time. Although I got to admit, there is absolutely ludicrous stuff that we're going to go over in this podcast. And none of this is real. None of this is anything but a complete flight of fancy out of L. Ron Hubbard's head. And as you'll see, as I'm going to show you, um, in the heads of and imaginations of Scientologists, they take this information and they run with it, as did I when I was a Scientologist. And so I, you know, I'm not uh, in any way saying <laughs> that, uh, you know, if you, give, if you give a person a good enough reason to believe something, they'll believe it. And it really doesn't matter what it is. Uh, and if you go across the, you know, the range of, beliefs that people engage in across the religious spectrum, you're going to find a lot of ridiculous nonsense, things that absolutely could never be true, are not, and will never be true. But people believe these things either as metaphor or sometimes, uh, all too often, they believe them as literal truth. They actually, these things actually happened. They are real as uh, this microphone in front of me is real. So too was, you know, the burning bush or the parting of the Red Sea or the crucifixion of Christ or, um, you know, Muhammad's travails or L. Ron Hubbard's, uh, including L. Ron Hubbard's claims of uh, space opera is what we could call this. Uh, fantastical science fiction stories are sometimes classically referred to as space opera. And this was just another term for um, the pulp fiction coming out of the pulp fiction era, you know, science fiction, uh, stories centered around the concepts of science and discovery and invention and what this might do for us and our civilization and how we might react and respond to it. That's, that's basically a nice little description of science fiction. And it's something L. Ron Hubbard spent a lot of time writing as a pulp fiction author 
Um, and as a as the founder of Scientology, he also engaged in writing in a whole lot of science fiction as a cult leader. And he expected the difference being that when he was writing for the pulps, he was writing for a penny a word and he was making a living. And he didn't expect anybody to believe any of that. Uh, as a cult leader, he expected everybody to instantly and uh, without any critical thought whatsoever, believe everything he said and to uh, validate those beliefs in their Scientology auditing. And again, that's I'll, I'll show you some examples of, of exactly what we're talking about as we roll out. I first wanted to um, kind of start this off with a little um, modern context or a little like, okay, what, what, you know, L. Ron Hubbard wrote a lot of crap. Uh, and over all those years, some of it has been um, invalidated or made less of, or even within the world of Scientology, some of it is kind of like, well, yeah, but that was early stuff. And there were later developments that sort of superseded the, that knowledge. And, and so we don't necessarily you know, use that as much as we might use more modern stuff that Hubbard came up with, okay? That's kind of an argument that you will sometimes find in and out of Scientology is, well, there was a developmental line. There was a, a, a period of discovery in Scientology where L. Ron Hubbard was discovering things. And as more discoveries were, you know, unearthed, Earlier discoveries were clarified or contextualized, and so we don't necessarily think about them the same way or use them the same way anymore. Well, true enough, that is that is the case in some parts of some of what we're going to cover. But I'm going to start this podcast today by first giving you a little bit of late Scientology context. This is uh, I'm going to read to you from a bulletin from 1980. Now, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, that's a long time ago, but L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986. There were no more L. Ron Hubbard writings after that point. So 1980 is pretty late stage Scientology. And it was also the point where L. Ron Hubbard was uh, pretty demonstrably losing his marbles <laughs> and going off on, on uh, I mean, if you, you know, the, the early stuff was already bad enough. Some of the stuff Hubbard wrote in 1980 include that bulletin that you might have heard or seen about how L. Ron Hubbard claims to be Lucifer, the light bringer, and how uh, he, this is the bulletin where Hubbard says that Jesus Christ was a lover of boys, you know, young, young, uh, uh, boys and young men, and that, uh, that he was given to fits of temper and, and hostility, and, and that Jesus Christ was really not that great of a guy. And in fact, goes on to describe how this was all a precursor, Jesus Christ himself, and the whole concept of all of that was really just an implant, which is a which is something we're going to cover in this podcast, what an implant is. And he said that the whole of Christianity is really just an implant, and that it's all fake, it's all not real. And, uh, and that was also something he wrote in 1980. So, just to kind of put one with another, this is a bulletin called The Nature of a Being. And uh, a being referring here to a thetan, a spiritual being, an entity that is who you really are in Scientology. The, the basic concept in Scientology um, is that you are a spiritual entity called a thetan, uh, from the Greek letter theta. You just take theta, you put an N on the end of it, you make it a noun, and now that's a thetan. And that's who you are. 
Uh, I'm a Thetan, you're a Thetan. We're not these bodies. These bodies are just temporary housings for us so that we can interact in the physical world and, and have a life and enjoy sensation and and perception and things like that. But we don't really need a body in order to live, according to L. Ron Hubbard. And here he clarifies this in 1980 when he, talk, when he writes this bullet and then he says, quote here, when one is associated with or attempting to guide or handle a person, it is necessary to know something of the nature of a being. If a being were a single unit, Separated from all other beings, conditions, and current influences, the task of understanding him would be relatively simple, and philosophers would have had it all worked out long before Dianetics and Scientology. A single unit responds, or sorry, I should say a single unit being responds to the most elementary and simple rules and laws you will find in Dianetics and Scientology. In other words, a Phaeton all by himself, all on his own lonesome, without a body and all the other crap, responds quite easily. It's very simple to deal with a Phaeton as a Phaeton. Um, the fact of the matter is that when one addresses a person, returning to reading Hubbard here, um, when one addresses a person, a human being in the flesh, one is not addressing a simple being. Possibly an example will illustrate this. this you guys are going to love this. I had just finished giving a Congress, and a staff member had some appointments, had made some appointments for me to see people who wanted to talk to me. And in a conference room, I was suddenly confronted by a woman who was demonstrably, demonstrably and actively insane. She was incoherent. She was being, quote-unquote, pursued. She was utterly agitated. Well, I was not then and never was in the business of treating the insane. We're just going to let that lie slide right by right now. I'm not going to comment on that any more than to say that L. Ron Hubbard is a liar. Uh, to continue the quote, yet here was a situation which, has, which had to be handled if only to maintain social calm. In those days, there were many techniques for exteriorizing people. So I used one of them, putting her back of her head. Okay, so here he's referring to exteriorization, the act of taking a spiritual entity or a thetan out of their body so that they are aware of the fact that they are perceiving with their spiritual perceptors and not the body. It doesn't have to be visual, right? You could put a thetan up in a corner of a room and maybe they hear things differently or they just feel different. Maybe they see visually what's going on as well and they can see their body, see themselves outside of it. In psychology, we call this disassociation. It's not a good thing. But in Scientology, they call it exteriorization, and they love it. This is Hubbard's proof for the fact that we are spiritual entities, is he can say some words to you like, be three feet back of your head. That's a command that's used in Scientology to exteriorize someone. So be three feet back of your head. Bop! Oh, wow! Hey, I can see the room from the corner. Wow, I'm not my body. I'm a Thetan. Right? People delusionally believe this. Uh, okay, so he says that he used one of these techniques on this insane woman. And um, promptly, he says, he writes here, continuing, promptly she went sane, 
calmly reviewed her problem with her husband, sensibly made up her mind what she was going to do to properly resolve the matter, thanked me, and departed. For a brief time, she had temporarily become a single unit being. <clears throat> I have not given the example as a lesson in what to do in such cases for exteriorization techniques are not reliable but only to illustrate the complexity of people. In other words, you'll never do this, but I did, and you're going to take my word for it, right? If you try to do this on somebody, it probably won't work because exteriorization techniques are unreliable. What you see as a human being, Hubbard says, what you see as a human being, a person is not a single unit being. In the first place, there is a matter of, there is the matter of valence, a person can be himself or he can be under the belief that he is another person or thing entirely. This removes him a step from being a simple being. So valence is like a personality, somebody else's personality you've laid over yours. And that is, Hubbard says, a, a, a point of complexity. Then there is the matter of being in a body. A body is a very complex contrivance, quite remarkable, quite complicated, and it is also quite subject to its own distortions. And now here we get to the part that I was reading this to you for. There are also the entities, as discussed in Dynetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, and also the history of man. These follow all the rules and laws and phenomena of single beings. So Hubbard here is referring to a whole other class or type of, of living organism or entity, um, not in a body, but it's part of you called an entity. These are later referred to in, in the confidential esoteric levels of Scientology as body thetans, which we've talked about at length. And if you uh, know anything about the Xenu narrative, as you can see on my shirt here, um, Xenu is all about uh, the body thetans, and those are also called, like I said, entities. So in 1980, the reason I'm, I'm pointing this out here is because I wanted you guys to know that the history of man was written in 1952 and released as this incendiary, amazing, oh my God, work of, you know, a cold-blooded factual account of your last 76 million years, right? And it's this book that contains a lot of nonsense we'll cover in a few minutes. But, um, but that book was part of this research trail, and L. Ron Hubbard says in 1980, it's all valid. The entities, everything he said in there about that, it's all true. So uh, if anybody in Scientology or out tries to tell you that the data in history of man is no longer used, that's old, that's stuff that Scientologists don't really believe, they are lying. L. Ron Hubbard himself tells you in 1980, as one of the last bulletins he, uh, he wrote, that, um, that that's not the case, that this stuff is very, very, very valid. Okay. So um, this also gives you a little window, by the way, into um, where Scientologists are coming from. Because uh, this composite being, this idea that you are a number of things put together, kind of slammed together with the Thetan being the most basic, fundamental, actual essence of you, these other things that get piled on are the things that Scientologists think about as not them. It's separate from them. So, for example, their, their body, 
not me. This isn't me. This is just my body. Well, that sets up all kinds of problematic ways of thinking because a thetan doesn't have illness. A thetan can't be injured, but a body sure can. And so if a body gets sick or a body gets injured, well, my body got sick. My body got injured as though it's something separate from you, who you really are. This, again, is disassociation to a marked, you know, ultimate degree. And it creates this separation in a person's mind, an artificial separation that allows a person to justify not caring for their body, not paying any attention to it, not giving it medicine or taking it to the doctor or caring for it uh, with, the, with proper diet or sleep. This really does, I can tell you from personal experience, <laughs> this really opens the door, this kind of thinking to a wholesale abuse and lack of self-care, right? Just as one negative consequence of this kind of thinking. Um, but there are many, many, many other uh, problems with this, and that is also because this idea opens the door to the fact that you have had other bodies in the past. You've lived before. And in fact, as a Thetan, you are nearly infinitely old. There is no age really assigned to a Thetan in Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard said at one point that Thetans were like 76 million years old, but that changed. That was something that changed definitely later on when he starts referring to things that happened to us trillions of years ago and even quadrillions of years ago right here in this physical universe. So Hubbard has put forward the idea that we have lived over and over and over and over and over again billions and trillions of lives both in this kind of a humanoid human being body and in other kinds of bodies. And as Tony Ortega very correctly pointed out, um, you know, I used to even forward the line that, well, it's not aliency because we're all Thetans and Thetans are spiritual beings and they don't really have, that's not really an alien, it's a spirit, right? And so we don't really have aliens in Scientology, we have Thetans and this was just, as Tony correctly pointed out, just another thought-stopping cliche that I myself had bought into and was pushing because I was still thinking like a Scientologist for a long time after getting out of Scientology, right? It took me a long time to, to shed some of those beliefs. So this idea that uh, there aren't any aliens in Scientology, totally false. There's aliens all over the place. You have been an alien in past lives, according to Scientology. Many, many, many different kinds of aliens. And, um, and, and uh, Hubbard actually refers to all kinds of alien races and species. Um, he, uh, I'm going to read a little bit here from some notes on this. Uh, and also out of uh, some of the uh, really nicely put together Wikipedia pages, on space opera and uh, implants and whole track or history of man uh, related uh, stuff. This is all broken down quite well, and I'm kind of using this as as some as an outline for myself and some and some notes. And I wanted to share this with you that Hubbard discussed the history of human civilizations on Earth and the lives of ancient sea monsters and fish people as well. He said that humans could recover memories of previous lives, such as the experiences of clams and Neanderthals. 
Uh, in his mythos, Atlantis, Hubbard does mention Atlantis and Lemuria in lectures. And he says that Atlantis was a completely electronics civilization whose inhabitants possessed disintegration technology. Um, and also that there have been invader forces, groups of aliens who have invaded Earth over time. For example, he said during 1200 BC, there were multiple groups. The fifth invader force was coming from Mars, while the fourth invader force was coming from Space Command, and they were fighting it out here on Earth. So there's an interesting... Um, mythology or cosmology in Scientology. And unfortunately, it is a not integrated, not coherent, not logically sequenced um, cosmology. It's a very haphazard, bungled, random kind of cosmology where Hubbard really just dropped lines here and there. Maybe he might tell a story in a lecture and that story or anecdote might go for a couple paragraphs, a few minutes. Or he might drop a line or two about installations on Mars or Venus or how he took a trip on a train on, uh, on Venus the other night, right? This is a famous uh, crazy quote of Hubbard's, is the trains that exist on Venus and how Venus is actually a completely habitable planet and uh, science gets it all wrong. So Hubbard says that science gets it all wrong on all of this, by the way. Hubbard thoroughly invalidates all scientific efforts to poke holes in his goofy mythology and narratives. And uh, Scientologists buy it up, right? They really do lap that stuff up. And I did, too, when I was a Scientologist. I could not get enough of this stuff. I thought that this space opera stuff was the most interesting parts of, mo of a lot of Scientology. And I wanted to know all about it. I really wanted to put together, as when I was a Scientologist, I wanted to really put together the whole history, the whole cosmology, right? I wanted to know. However, what I have learned both in and out of Scientology is that I was kind of an exceptional person that way. Most Scientologists don't care about this stuff that much. And this is kind of interesting. In the same way that almost that only about 5% of Scientologists ever make it to the level of Xenu and OT3 and get on to those OT levels where they start learning about all these entities and body thetans and all this nonsense. I never got to that level, and most Scientologists don't. So they don't ever actually even learn about Xenu. However, you don't need to crawl all the way up the bridge to Xenu in order to find out about most of this fantastical space opera. You can learn about it by reading the books or listening to the lectures that are not confidential or up in the esoteric bands of Scientology. And, um, and we're going to cover now um, the key text, you might say, that kind of got the whole thing going. And that book is called... Scientology, A History of Man. <clears throat> it was published in 1952, originally called What to Audit. In Scientology, auditing is the process of counseling or uh, uh, giving a, a, an auditor, basically hypnotizing a pre-clear, a person who is trying to get up to the level of clear or OT. They're trying to move up the stages of spiritual awareness and ability that Scientology promises. And the auditing procedure is the way you do that. And so you have to have an auditor, and the auditor has to give you questions and commands and make you remember things. 
And this is the kind of stuff that you're actually supposed to be diving back into eventually, maybe not on day one or two, but eventually in your Scientology experience, you are expected to start going down what's called the whole track, okay? In Scientology, there's a lot of terminology, and I'm going to try really hard to gloss over most of it in this talk. But uh, the track or the time track is the uh, supposed recollection or, or collection of memories you have of this lifetime. Your time track is this lifetime. You were born Joe Smith or Sally Sue, and every experience you've had all the way up to now is collectively in your memory referred to as your time track. All the collection of all the memories of everything that's happened to you in all of your past lives, too, is referred to as the whole track, right? W-H-O-L-E, not H-O-L-E, not, not whole as in there's a hole in it. Uh, so the whole track is all of it, all your time tracks of all your lives put together, all the things you've ever experienced. And Hubbard also suffered from the delusion that memory was perfect and absolute and that everybody could have full eidetic recall. Hubbard desperately wanted that, I suppose. And he gave the idea over in Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, that eidetic recall, full 3D uh, recall of every single thing that ever happened to you is possible and is part of the ideal state for, for people and that auditing is the thing that will actually restore your amnesia on your whole track. And ultimately, by getting all the way up the bridge to OT8, the top of Scientology's uh, levels, you will restore your amnesia on the whole track. You'll remember everything, every single thing that ever happened to you. And, uh, and in 1968, Hubbard even wrote a book called Mission Into Time, where he made the claim in writing that he remembers every single thing that's ever happened to him, including, um, he said, it might be a little difficult to dredge up what I had for breakfast three million years ago, but I remember all of it, right? He made that very tall claim, and of course, that's complete nonsense. Okay, so that's auditing and that whole thing, okay? So now, getting into history of man. So this is called, this was originally called what to audit. In other words, this is the stuff you're supposed to be auditing. And in 1952, this was brand new stuff. UFO cults were not brand new. UFO cults were all the rage in the United States in the 19, early 1950s. And L. Ron Hubbard was riding that wave. And he took Dianetics as a proto-pseudoscience, which was not scientific at all, and had been trashed in the scientific communities. And he flipped the script and made it into a religion called Scientology. And with a religion, see, you have faith and belief, not scientific fact or evidence. And you don't have to show any evidence of anything. You just have to have faith. And in Scientology, faith revolves around this idea that you're a spiritual entity who's lived before and that you can faithfully remember all of your past lives and you're invited to do so. And Hubbard's first invitation was this book where he, which he called A Cold-Blooded and Factual Account of Your Last 60 Trillion Years. I think I misquoted that earlier. Um, gone through a few different editions. Um, the book originated in auditing sessions that were uh, in Wichita. L. Ron Hubbard and his uh, then new gal pal, uh, Mary Sue, who he got pregnant and married. 
in early 1953. Um, Anyway, he and Mary Sue had a good old time with the new invention of the electropsychometer or e-meter. That was a brand new thing that had just been uh, gifted to him by Volney Matheson, the inventor of the e-meter. And Hubbard took it and ran with it. There's also a claim from Nibs, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., his son, who had just graduated high school and joined L. Ron Hubbard in Phoenix, Arizona in 1952. And he said... Uh, quote, um, Hubbard gave his son Nibs some amphetamines and Nibs started talking. He said, started really going, talking fast from the speed. And he kept talking. He kept talking and his dad kept giving him speed. And all of a sudden he was talking about his history when he was a clam and all these different situations in early earth. And out of that came history of man. So if L. Ron Hubbard Jr. is to be believed from his uh, memories of when he first got on board Scientology's crazy train and got with his father, whose, uh, whose approval he desperately wanted, and he uh, got uh, into working with L. Ron Hubbard on his Scientology venture and apparently got loaded up with speed. And that's where some of these incidents came from, as well as this quote-unquote research that Hubbard was doing with Mary Sue. Um, again, this was in Scientology's very earliest formative days of uh, 1952. Um, the book is also called um, What to Audit, A List and Description of the Principal Incidents to be Found in a Human Being. Okay. And I thought we might want to clarify that the word incident is kind of another of those uh has a specific context in Scientology as a description of a space opera event in the universe's distant past involving alien interventions in past lives. It's a basic belief in Scientology that, you know, that you're an immortal spiritual being and all that. So incidents apparently can, can happen all over the place and do, and they are referred to as incidents. And the history of man is chock-a-block full of them. Now, one of the things that Hubbard um, talks about when he goes into these incidents is he, is he adds a further layer of confusion on all of this by saying that you actually have two parallel lines of memory that you're walking around with all the time, and that this can be very, very confusing for a Thetan. Um, you have a body line, and you have the Thetan line. Okay, or the Thetan line of memories, I should say. When I use the word line there, I mean, talking about memories. Um, you are a composite being, as L. Ron Hubbard said, right? You are not your body, but your body has antecedents. It, has, it, has, it came from somewhere. Your body wasn't just invented whole cloth by a spiritual entity. It was created by two other bodies. Well, those bodies have a genetic line, a, a past because they came from two bodies coming together, and they came from two bodies coming together, and that came from two bodies coming together. So you go back, 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 and you have what Hubbard refers to as the genetic line of memories, and that bodies have their own kind of intrinsic life force connected with them, which he refers to as a GE, or a genetic entity. This is a very, very confusing thing, even in Scientology. Most Scientologists can't stand this concept. They, their heads just go crazy. They start exploding because it's very hard to wrap your wits around. 
I'm I'm giving my best simple explanation here uh, on this, but Scientologists will spend hours and hours trying to figure out what L. Ron Hubbard's talking about when he refers to a genetic entity. Basically, it's the life, it's the it's the primitive basic life impulse or force that creates and drives the evolution of bodies. And that's a separate life thing or entity from the Thetan. The Thetan has nothing to do with creating bodies. The Thetan uses bodies and inhabits bodies. It takes them over in the same way as a puppet master, you might imagine, or children playing with dolls. Children are not the dolls. Children are clearly the children, right? But they play with the dolls. They act as though they are the dolls. That's kind of the relationship between a Thetan and a body. It uh, just so happens that in the case of dolls, uh, human beings, they have their own life. It, you could take the Thetan away, in other words, and the body would still be alive. Hubbard says that the body would act very much like a zombie or, a, or an ape or something. It would be very unintelligent, very guttural, very instinctive. And there really wouldn't be much there in terms of intelligence or language or, or building or initiative and that kind of thing. So only the most primitive basic life impulses are driving the body. But those impulses can get in the way of the Thetan, and the Thetan can get confused when he's inhabiting a body by some of these genetic impulses and also by the genetic memories. And History of Man features an awful lot of incidents that are that are happened on the genetic line that can confuse a Thetan and can mess him up because they didn't really happen to him. But he thinks they did because the body remembers. Okay, and I hope all of that as the most simple explanation I know how to give on this. I hope that makes sense. So what are some of these genetic memories? Well, here we have... Um, some of them described, and I'm just going to kind of go through their summary here. Uh, there is the atom, complete with electronic rings. I mean, literally an atom. According to Hubbard, there seems to be a hole in space immediately ahead of the atom, which generates a particular state of mind in a person. Okay, so Hubbard says that uh, you can have a genetic recall going all the way back to atomic molecular memories. How that's supposed to work, where those memories would be stored. I mean, come on, you know, this is just ludicrous at this point. But, and we're already doing, we're just barely getting started. Anyway, then we have uh, the cosmic impact based on the premise that, quote, as physicists tell us, cosmic rays enter the body in large numbers and occasionally explode in the body. Very early on the track, the impact of a cosmic ray and its explosion is very destructive to the existing organism. So again, you might have in your auditing in Scientology, it might come up that you were some single cell mollusk, you know, or something like that, or not mollusk, but whatever, some amoeba or whatever. And uh, there you are, you know, laying on the beach, minding your own business, and suddenly you get exploded by a cosmic ray. Okay. <laughs> you have the photon converter, uh, like having memories of being an algae or a plankton. Um, this could be responsible, Hubbard said, for fears of light and dark, the storms of the sea, the fight to keep from rolling into the surf. So this, uh, this struggle for existence and survival might be reflected in your life right now 
by an existential, a constant existential dread. And uh, it has its source, Hubbard says, in the photon converter. Uh, or you have the helper, which is an incidence of mitosis or cell division, um, which was a, quote, confusing area for the genetic entity, which therein has much cause for misidentification. So here you have the idea that you have a cell that is splitting, and this is causing split personality, confusion about identity, right? These are direct cause-effect kind of connections that Hubbard draws between things that happened to your body on a genetic line millions of years ago and your current travails and troubles. I mean, this is, this is the most simple Simon psychoanalysis uh, nonsense you could ever imagine. But we finally get to the clam. And this is quite famous in Scientology criticism. Um, oh, boy, the clam. Okay, and I'm going to give you a quote as to why this is so ridiculous. You guys will enjoy this. The clam is, um, let's see, a number of incidents. Um, okay, encounters between jellyfish and cave walls are held to be responsible for the emergence of a shell, as in the clam. The clam itself is a deadly incident involving a scalloped lip, white-shelled creature which suffered from a severe split personality or, quote-unquote, double hinge problem. One hinge wishes to stay open, the other tries to close, thus conflict occurs. According to Hubbard, the hinges of the clam later become the hinges of the human jaw. And the clam's method of reproduction in spores is said to be responsible for toothaches. In one of the most famous passages of the book, Hubbard says, quote, Should you desire to confirm this, describe to some uninitiated person the death of a clam without saying what you are describing. Can you imagine a clam sitting on the beach, opening and closing its shell very rapidly? Now, while you're doing this, you're supposed to make a motion with your thumb and finger, rapidly opening and closing. The victim, the person you're talking to, may grip his jaw with his hand and feel quite upset. He may even have to have a few teeth pulled. At the very least... He will argue as to whether or not the shell stays open at the end or closed, and he will, with no hint of the death aspect of it, talk about the poor clam, and he will feel quite sad emotionally. Well, I invite any of you, any of you, to go out and do this exercise with an uninitiated friend of yours and see what happens. I guarantee you none of this nonsense is what's going to happen. Hubbard goes on to warn the reader that your discussion of these incidents with the uninitiated in Scientology can cause havoc. Should you describe the clam to someone, you may re-stimulate it in him to the extent of causing severe jaw pain. One such victim, after hearing about a clam death, could not use his jaws for three days. This is, of course, a um, precursor to Hubbard's later claim that if you find out too much about Xenu, you're going to die. <laughs> Here with the clam, you're just going to feel a little bad. Might have to have some teeth pulled and your jaw's going to hurt. <sighs> wow. 
Another genetic incident is the weeper or boohoo deals with a mollusk that rolled in the surf for half a million years, pumping seawater from its shell as it breathed. Weepers had trillions of misadventures, whereof the principle was the anxiety of inhalation before the next wave. The inability of a pre-clear to cry, Hubbard said, is partly a hang-up in the weeper. He is about to be hit by a wave, has his eyes full of sand, or is frightened about opening his shell because he may be hit. Okay, so again, simple Simon, direct causative connections between genetic incidents millions of years ago and current travails like you can't cry. Well, that's because of the mollusk that your body remembers from millions of years ago. Sure. All right. There's other incidents about being eaten, about birds coming around and giving you a hard time. There's a whole thing about a sloth falling out of trees, getting attacked by baboons. There is an incident called the ape in which the genetic entity was inhabiting an agile and intelligent host. The ape is usually an area of overt acts against animals and incidents of protecting young. Uh, overts are bad things, moral transgressions. Then there is classic uh, Hubbard pseudoscience rearing its ugly head with the Piltdown Man. Now, the Piltdown Man was a hoax. It was a it was a uh, artificially created uh, Neanderthal statue or something that was found and uncovered, and it was claimed to be real. And then they discovered it was a hoax, and they called it the Piltdown Man. And this was around 1952. Hubbard heard about this wrote it into his book before it came out that it was a hoax. The Piltdown Man was a creature, not an ape, yet not entirely a man, Hubbard wrote. Similar but not identical, um, let's see, it resulted in a variety of psychological conditions in modern humans, including, quote, obsessions about biting efforts to hide the mouth and early familial troubles. The Piltdown Man was characterized by, quote, freakish acts of strange logic, of demonstrating dangerous on one's fellows, of eating one's wife, or, or sorry, and other illogical activities. The Piltdown teeth were enormous, and he was quite careless as to whom and what he bit, and often very much surprised at the resulting damage. Okay, just a little color for you from the Neanderthal age for a la L. Ron Hubbard. And finally, we get the caveman, the final stage of evolution prior to modern man, at which, quote, one crippled one's woman to keep her at home or poisoned one's man for having kept her there. Memories of this era were responsible for, quote, any condition of interpersonal relationships, such as jealousy and overt acts around it, strangling, smashing in heads with rocks, quarrels about homes, tribal rebukes, and pack instincts. So pretty much where Hubbard lived, Hubbard just pretty much describing himself as a domestic partner. He was an abuser. He was a serial abuser of all of his wives. And um, here Hubbard's describing that the reason for that clearly was because he was dramatizing his caveman genetic memories. Uh, I'm just kind of throwing that in as additional color. Hubbard never connected the dots between his abuse and the caveman, but he should have. All right. Now, those are genetic memories. Those are things that have to do with memories that your body is having that you confuse with your own memories from your own time as a spiritual entity. However, there are a ton 
of incidents in Scientology that happened to you as a spiritual entity. Now, we could try to break this down chronologically, but that would be a little bit of a fool's errand because Hubbard was all over the place with the dates and times of these various incidents that he describes. So instead, I'm going to try to kind of, I'm going to go to the first most important ones, and then we will kind of glide on through. First, I'm going to give a little bit of an overview here, right? You have in Scientology this belief of immortality and endless past lives. The first incident in Scientology that Hubbard assigns the most earliest date to or time to was an incident four quadrillion years ago, and Hubbard refers to this as Incident 1. This is actually part of OT Level 3. This is part of the whole Xenu thing. Xenu is Incident 2. The, the four quadrillion years ago thing is Incident 1. And this is a, um, an incident in which a Thetan encountered, quote, loud cracks and brightness and then observed a cherub and chariot before experiencing total darkness. Uh, okay, then there is incident two, which is the myth of Xenu, which is the galactic genocide that Xenu committed 76 million years ago, or sorry, 75 million years ago. Uh, the dictator Xenu uh, ruled a confederacy that was suffering from overpopulation and using tax law and DC-8-like airplanes, he uh, uh, basically um, subdued the entire population, shipped them off to Earth, which, is, was, which was then known as Tegiak, and uh, decimated everybody, uh, quadrillions of, of beings, trillions of beings, with um, uh, atomic weapons, right? He blew up a bunch of atomic bombs in volcanoes here on Earth, destroyed everybody, and entrapped them as spiritual beings, right? A la Ghostbusters, right? If you are trying to imagine how do you trap a spiritual being, Ghostbusters, right? You get a trap. You, you use electronics. You trap them and you contain them, and then you implant them. And here's where we get to implants. Implants are the forceful um, coercion of somebody by forcing them to believe or, or think that they have experienced something which they did not in fact experience, but you made them think they did by throwing false memories and pictures and implanting those in the person using pain, drugs, and hypnosis and or any other means of uh, force and coercion that will get the person to accept these memories as their own. Uh, and this is not just memories, this is also goals, uh, life goals, right? Plans, things you want to accomplish. You can implant somebody with goals, false goals, false purposes, right? Ideas that they think they want to have or accomplish, but they are in fact um, artificial constructs that were implanted in the person. And Hubbard has said many, 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 many times, and we're going to go over some of the exact implants but Hubbard said over and over and over again that Thetans have been subjected to implanting hundreds of billions of times, right? It's happened over and over and over again. Between your lives, you're being re-upped on your implants. Um, you're just floating around in space 76 million years ago, and you got grabbed. 
and implanted. It happens over and over again. And also, not only were you implanted, but you're wondering, who's running around doing all this implanting? You were. <laughs> you were also implanting others. Because in the various lives you had over time, you were both the victim and the victimizer. You were the implantee and the implanter. You worked for the bad guys. You were at the, you were caught by the bad guys. Depends on the life you led. And over and over and over again, you would end up being on both ends of this. And Hubbard actually says that it's because of the fact that you were an implanter too that so much of this has so much force and power over you because of all the guilt you're carrying around with you as a Thetan because you know you've been up to no good, even if you can't remember all the specifics of it. Okay, so what kind of specifics are we talking about? Well, of course, we have the whole Xenu implant. And that implant, by the way, is supposed to be the implant that contains all of Christianity and Catholicism, symbolic, uh, a lot of religious symbology, devils, angels, you know, the whole God, Lucifer, construct, all of that was implanted by Xenu. Or we could say Zimu. Either way, same guy. Um, Hubbard also taught that upon the death of humans, Thetans continued to implant stations, including locations on planets near Earth, where their memories were erased and new memories implanted. On grounds that some implant stations were better than others, Hubbard advised his followers to avoid the one on Venus. After plastering an implant station, he taught the Thetan returned to Earth and got a new body, right? That was part of the command structure of the implants to keep you under control as a Thetan, right? These are these invader forces, these, these populations that are doing the implanting are very aware of the fact that you are a Thetan. And as a Thetan, you have this immortal, you have this, this uh, uh, almost unlimited power and ability, but we have to suppress you so you don't, right? We don't want the ghosts running around destroying everything. We don't want the ghosts running around, you know, screwing up New York, right? So the Ghostbusters have to come and, and uh, capture all the ghosts and, and, and put them away so that they stop getting in everybody's way, see? It's that kind of thinking. Only it's not a movie. And it's not Ghostbusters. It's reality as far as Scientologists are concerned. Um, okay, so what kind of things are we talking about uh, when we talk about these incidents? Well, we talked a little bit about some of the stuff in History of Man as far as genetic incidents, but let's go through a couple of, um, of things from History of Man. There was a thing called the um, bubblegum incident or the fly trap. Uh, early important incident, quote, where you are hit with a motion and finally develop an obsession about motion. Boy, that's specific, isn't it? <laughs> it was uh, the first incident on the whole track, which included words. That's the, that's the, the claim to fame for the fly trap. Um, let's see here. Very, very early on the track, a long time before the present populace came into being, there was a theta trap called the fly trap. It was of a gummy material, also called the bubble gum incident, because every time a thetan pushes against it, it pushes back. 
and it finally gives him an obsession about motion. So one gets the idea of uh, being wrapped up in caramel or bubble gum or something and trying to push your way out of it and it resisting you the whole time. And this is, of course, with you as a Thetan. And there were some words apparently connected into this as well. Somehow language got involved in this. Although you can see in the description here, Hubbard gives no idea of what those words are. You're just supposed to imagine it, make it up as you go. Uh, but this is an example of one of these whole track incidents. Another one is called the coffee grinder. We love these colloquial names. Um, the coffee grinder is the fourth invader forces outright control mechanism invented to cut down rebel raids on invader installations. It was originally laid down in this galaxy about a million years ago, says Hubbard, and consists of a two-handled portable machine, which when turned emits a heavy push-pull electronic wave in a series of stuttering baps. The invader gratuitously left these machines around for the yokels. Believing that the treatment was vital to get to heaven or some such thing, the yokels practiced on each other, found new victims, and generally spread the implant around. Okay, so that's the coffee grinder. About a million years ago, apparently that started being all the rage. Then we have the ice cube incident. Uh, I, this is an interesting story in which alien invaders in flying saucers plant living entities. Um, from History of Man, quote, Here is an intriguing incident which, if your pre-clear demands, should be audited. This is evidently a method of transportation of beings to a new area. The being is packed in ice, is taken to the new area, and is usually dumped in the ocean. Your pre-clear, if he has this one in re-stimulation, has very cold hands and feet chronically. Uh, Hubbard also said the new crew in the area is later quite surprised to find that their planted beings, so carefully dumped in the sea from a saucer, are being picked up between lives and given treatment by an old established invader whose methods of political control are long since established. So here you have cross-pollination of implanting because you have various invader forces fighting one another using implant technology. So one invader force might think it's got things under control using a certain set of implants like an ice cube or a coffee grinder, only to find that another invader force is operating in the same area using a whole other set of implants. And uh, this is apparently very difficult for uh, auditors to sort out in auditing. Then we have another incident called the Jack in the Box. Again, according to Hubbard, quote, here we have an invader trick, a method of trapping Thetans, wherein the uh, alien invaders trick the Thetans into gathering an endless loop of mental image pictures and confusing themselves, ultimately ending in an explosion. Hubbard goes on and on about explosions, by the way. Hubbard warns auditors, quote, you will find a preclear with this in re-stimulation to be very curious about cereal boxes which have pictures of cereal boxes which have pictures of cereal boxes. <laughs> I swear to God, man. You, you just wonder where Hubbard comes up with this stuff. Uh, at the breakfast table, apparently. All right, now, um, getting back to... Okay, now, we're going to talk here wrapping... We're going to... We're gonna, 
The last type of thing we're going to talk about here today are these goals, this idea that goals are implanted in people. And there are a whole series of these. Now, this comes from later developments in Scientology. In 1952, with, with History of Man, Hubbard wrote about all this genetic stuff and about these basic kind of implant things like the jack-in-the-box and the, and the bubblegum. Later in the 1960s, and when he was at St. Hill, about 1962-63, Hubbard started going on a tear about how we've all been implanted with goals and how these goals have really messed us up and how people are operating on false goals and artificial goals, but they believe them to be their own. And so they fight very hard. They're very defensive about them. And they basically end up living lives trying to accomplish these goals that they never wanted to accomplish, had nothing to do with what they want to do as a Thetan, and they are really trapped in a kind of script that they can't get out of, a TV show that they have to keep acting, being the main actor in, and they're not even aware that they're on screen or that they're in a TV scripted show, see? And this is the life of most people on planet Earth, according to L. Ron Hubbard, which is why they say that, that Scientology says that Earth is a prison planet. We're all stuck here, and we're stuck in living scripts that were given to us that we don't even know anything about. That's the power of this stuff in Scientology. And so you're led to believe, when you learn about this, that you don't really even know who you are, what you're about, or what you want in life. And most of what you want is just bullshit. And it's, it's somebody else telling you what you want. Now, we have enough of that in the real world. But Hubbard makes it this whole track, millions and billions of years long affair, see, which just compounds the nonsense. But for Hubbard, this was very clarifying. This was information that was like, oh, this is what's been going on with us all this time. Well, we can just audit out these goals, these implanted goals, and then everybody will be free to do what they want to do. They'll be free, Thetans. Uh, so what kind of goals are there, and how did they implant them? Well, we're going to go over a couple of these. These are really just a toss-off couple lines each, because so, this is about as much description as Hubbard gave. Remember, there's not some big tome somewhere or detailed explanations of all of this that I'm just kind of passing over, this is all you get. So here we have, for example, the aircraft door goals. These were implanted between 315 trillion years ago and 216 trillion years ago aboard the fuselage of an aircraft with the subject Thetan held motionless in front of the aircraft door. Hubbard wrote that the goal items were laid in with explosions, and the specific goals given in this implant were variants of the command to create. Goals in Scientology are usually listed that way, to fill in the blank, right? To blow up the planet would be a goal. To make a lot of money would be a goal. To create would be a goal. To destroy could be a goal. There are millions of variations of goals. To create is a goal that Hubbard goes on about because he says that Thetans can be made to obsessively create because uh, Thetans create things, right? We have everything here only because we all are 
mutually creating it. So um, creation is a big deal in Scientology. Then there's Gorilla Goals. According to Scientology, the Gorilla Goals were a series of implants created by invaders, <coughs> excuse me, from a planet called Helotrobus. And this happened between 319 to 256 trillion, trillion years ago. Trillion, trillion. That's what he wrote. And here's what he says about the Gorilla Goals. Quote, Given in an amusement park with a single tunnel, a roller coaster, and a Ferris wheel, the symbol of a gorilla was always present in the place the goal was given. Sometimes a large gorilla, black, was seen elsewhere than the park. A mechanical or a live gorilla was always seen in the park. This activity was conducted by the Hoi Polloi, a group of operators in meat body societies. They were typical carnival people. They let out concessions for these implant amusement parks. A pink striped white shirt with sleeve garters was the uniform of the hoi polloi. Such a figure often rode on the roller coaster cars. Monkeys were also used on the cars. Elephants sometimes formed part of the equipment. The hoi polloi used, quote, fantastic motion, as well as blasts of raw electricity and explosions to brainwash the Thetans into accepting the gorilla goals, with the goals including to end, to be dead, to be asleep, to be solid, to be sexual, and so on. Now, I am quite positive that anybody out there who's ever dropped some acid might be thinking <laughs> what I'm thinking, which is that this sounds very, very, very much like somebody's drug trip. Then there are the bear goals, very similar to the gorilla goals, except instead of a mechanical gorilla, a mechanical or live bear was used, and the motion was even more violent. Um, these were implanted by a group called the Brothers of the Bear and were the ancestors of the Hoi Polloi. Uh, then we have invisible picture goals. The invisible picture goals were implanted by an early race of alien implanters sometime between 110,000 trillion trillion years ago or earlier to 390 trillion trillion years ago. They comprised brainwashing of captive Thetans by showing them pictures of diametrically opposed goals, such as wake, never wake, sleep, never sleep, as well as invisible pictures to confuse the Thetan. Your guess is as good as mine as, as to what an invisible picture looks like. The other pictures would consist usually of a scene of a cave, a railway, an airplane, a view of a sun, and planets. So apparently 390 trillion trillion years ago, uh, we had uh, airplanes and planets and suns and caves and railways and bears and gorillas. Oh my. Then there are the train goals devised by the Markabians and implemented between hundreds of years ago to hundreds of thousands of years ago, so this is relatively recently, 
The train goals were a series of implants given in a huge train station. The Phaeton was put into a railway carriage quite like a British railway coach with compartments and subjected to a barrage of white energy. During the implant sequence, quote, a face may come up and say, you still here? Get out. Get off this train. We hate you. And from the speakers, this happened to you yesterday, tomorrow, now. This is your departure point. Keep coming back. You'll be meeting all your friends here. When you're killed and dead, keep coming back. You haven't a chance to get away. You've got to report in. This happened to you days ago, weeks ago, years ago. You don't know when this happened to you. We hate you. Get out. Don't ever come back. So thereby establishing in a nutshell there with one quote, the contradictory nature of implants and how they will be screaming commands and uh, confusing statements to you while giving you pictures of other things and just basically thoroughly confusing the hell out of you. Uh, black Thetan goals, also known as the Glade implants, were implanted between 390 trillion trillion years to 370 trillion trillion years ago. Only a gap of 20 uh, trillion trillion years <laughs> to fit in there. <laughs> According to Hubbard, they were in a glade surrounded by the stone heads, heads of black Thetans who spat white energy at the trapped Thetan. The goals included such things as to end to be dead, to be asleep, and so on. And of course, we do have heaven in here. Uh, Hubbard says that heaven is a real physical place and um, that he went there. And uh, the heaven implants were given 43,891,832. Oh God, no, I got that totally wrong. 43, is that 43 trillion? It's a long time ago. They comprise two series of views of heaven, the first of which was quite positive. Hubbard compares heaven to Bush Gardens in Pasadena. Uh, it's in Van Nuys, by the way. Anyway, Bush Gardens in Pasadena. Hubbard said in the second series, uh, heaven had become a lot shabbier. The place is shabby, he says. The vegetation is gone. The pillars are scruffy. The saints have vanished. So have the angels. A sign on one says, this is heaven. The right has a sign hell with an arrow, and inside the grounds one can see the excavations like archaeological diggings with raw terraces that lead to hell. Um, he said he did not encounter any devils or satans, um, and he said that it took the form of a town which consisted of a trolley bus. This is heaven L. Ron Hubbard's talking about. He says it consisted of a trolley bus some building fronts, sidewalks, train tracks, a boarding house, a bistro and a basement where there's a bulletin board well-lighted and a bank building. A passenger getting on the trolley bus, a workman halfway down the first stairs of to forget eating lunch and in to be in heaven. Anyway, this is all just kind of gobbledygook at this point, even trying to read it out loud. It's um, a little bit silly. Uh, okay, so what I wanted to end off with is 
I wanted to, if that's all what L. Ron Hubbard said, what do Scientologists do with this information? Well, for the most part, they don't do a whole lot of anything with it. But when it comes to their audit team, that's where this really comes into play. And the reason that this stuff is bad, of course, is because of the false memory syndrome and the disassociation and other kind of semi well, it could actually lead a person down a road to a psychotic state, right? Because you are living in delusional memories that have no basis in reality whatsoever. But in an effort to please L. Ron Hubbard's dictates and the Scientology culture, you have to come up with whole track memories in your auditing. There is no way in Scientology that you can climb the bridge to total freedom and get to the OT levels without acknowledging the literal truth of the whole track and these space opera incidents. However, not all Scientologists go in as hard as others. Most Scientologists don't even get to those OT levels. Most Scientologists don't totally care about this stuff. But some Scientologists, like myself, when I was in, really care about it, really get into it, and are really fascinated by it. But all Scientologists are affected by it. And here is an example. There was a book published in 1958, which is really hardly ever talked about. And I'm going to quote from this book today. And this book is called, Have You Lived Before This Life? I invite you to look this book up. It's pretty easy to obtain online. And it makes claims at the beginning that will help clarify for you the mindset of Scientologists but also clarify the context of all this crap I've been talking about in the podcast here and how Scientologists use and think about this in their own auditing, in their own counseling. And here is an example of an auditor from 1958 relating uh, what happened with his preclear when he... Uh, was auditing him, and this preclear was, of course, indoctrinated by L. Ron Hubbard on this history of man and other nonsensical stuff. So here's here's what the preclear came up with. Uh, okay, and of course, you guys know engrams are the things that people are auditing in Scientology. They're at moments of pain and unconsciousness in the person's past. The auditor contacted several engrams, but on final recheck, the engram with most charge was one not previously contacted, which appeared by chance and was ready to run. The PC had lost a robot body 468 million years ago. What could a robot body be? You mean you could have a body that's not organic, that's not biological? Yeah, you could. You could have a Terminator body. You could have a robot body. You could have a doll body. All of these are interchangeably used in Scientology. Doll bodies, robot bodies. And Hubbard talks about them. And so here's a preclear deciding 468 million years ago, he had a robot body. During the first five hours of running, the PC was coaxed to look further back at how he obtained the body. He had at first a stick body on Mars. Later, he decided it was a doll's body. Some parts of the incident were dub-in. In other words, they were made up. <laughs> but even some of this reshuffled, fitted into the final form, only slightly modified. The story, as near, as pos as near final as possible, runs as follows. 
The preclear was on Mars without a body 469,476,600 years ago, creating havoc, destroying a bridge and buildings. The people were called by an alarm to temple. PC went and broke the back pew and the temple tower. He wandered in town and saw a doll in a window and got entrapped trying to move its limbs. People seized it, beat it up, and threw the doll out of the window, 30-foot drop. The doll was taken roughly to the temple and was zapped by a bishop's gun while the congregation chanted, God is love. When the people left, the doll, out of control, staggered out and was run over by a large car and a steamroller. It was then taken back to the bishop, who ordered it to be taken in a lorry with others to dig trenches or ditches for 2,000 years. The whole incident took nearly 2 million years. Then it was taken and the body was removed and the PC was promised a robot body. The Phaeton went up to an implant station and was put into an ice cube and went by flying saucer and was dropped at planet ZX-432. It was drawn to a building, to an emanator. PC was interiorized by spinning and confusion into a dummy training and indoctrination robot body. In some way not very clear, a transfer was made to another robot body, and PC was told to look after it forever. It reported to a village after a doubtful encounter with a giant and heat stroke and was set to supervise unloading of saucers. It zapped and killed another robot and PC took over its body to prove it could work. The PC was punished in first robot in a saucer and shipped off. The saucer exploded en route and body of robot was in space falling in two parts with PC vainly endeavoring to take care of it and the second body. This was sucked by departure of a saucer into water in a dock. Divers brought it up, but the PC left it, he thinks, to attend the other body. That's the incident that this person remembered as a result of this kind of nonsensical space opera indoctrination in Scientology. And now this person's running around, or for, I don't know, now, but back in 1958, this person was running around believing that this actually happened to him. That this is a real memory of real things that happened to him over 2 million years. And I don't know how sad, how tragic, and ultimately how psychologically damaging that was for that person. But I can imagine uh, a lot of pretty negative outcomes as a result of walking around thinking that this is a reflection of reality. And this is basically your brain on Scientology. And so I thought I would throw that out there as, a, as an example, of not from Hubbard, but in an official Scientology publication, so as to give you guys an example of just how far off the rails people go with this, how detailed their memories, their false memories can be, right, based on their imagination, based on letting loose, because L. Ron Hubbard gives them permission to. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with flights of fancy. There's nothing wrong with having an active imagination and imagining all kinds of things. The problem comes when you associate those false imaginatory ideas 
with reality. And it very, very, very much skews a person's entire worldview in a completely insane, almost psychotic direction. And so uh, that's what I wanted to kind of throw out there with this is this is harmful stuff. Uh, and while it is ludicrous and hilarious at the same time, let's not forget that there are people who take this stuff very seriously and are walking amongst us right now. Uh, and so there you go. I hope that this podcast, which has been years kind of <clears throat> coming, helped clarify some of the deepest crazy of Scientology and will hopefully warn you guys away from it. Uh, you can dive into these books and lectures, but you're really not going to find a whole lot more details than what we've gone over here. Uh, Hubbard really did sort of propagate this whole mythology through hint and through suggestion and implication much more than he did through directly relating exact facts. Even the whole Xenu narrative is a handwritten joke. It's really just a bunch of nonsense. And that's the most detailed incident Hubbard lays out. So that's Scientology for you at its craziest upper levels um, and all the way down to the lowest levels, right? Uh, but there you go. I hope that you found this uh, podcast entertaining, informative, and educational. Thank you very much for coming around. And, of course, I will put in my uh, constant refrain at the end here that if you find this channel useful to you and something you want to support, and I really hope you do, that you'll consider joining me on Patreon or using my Venmo or PayPal links in the description below here to help support the channel. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.